So we've been a little while since we've been in Hosea, and we've so far made it through chapters 1 and 2. We started in October, so we're just flying through this book here in February. Um, But what have we learned in the first two chapters of Hosea so far? Maybe better put, what have you learned, or what have you remembered that you've learned? You may have remembered some things you didn't, or you may have learned some things you don't remember. But what what have you learned uh, about whatever from the book of Hosea? What lessons does it have to teach so far in chapters 1 and 2? Just summarize. You don't have to give me any long explanation, but just an overarching idea of stuff that you've learned. About How about, about Hosea's life and ministry and family and those kind of things? Yeah. 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 It gives us such a, like, there's such a human thing about seeing it played out or hearing a story and learning from that instead of a lot of New Testament, the epistles are doctrinal writings and this is true and this is true and you can get stuff from those. But there's something that connects us I don't know, more powerfully, gets more traction, is more sticky for us to remember when we hear a story about something. And, you know, the movie industry is built on the fact that we are fascinated by stories, right? They love sharing stories with us. So here you have the story of this couple, and it is meant to teach us about the love of God for us. And one of those big undergirding principles of God's love that you find from Hosea is that God's love is an enduring love, that it withstands unimaginable betrayal and rebellion. Things that you and I would say, that's it. If if you and I were all powerful and people betrayed us like God's people had betrayed Him, I think that things would turn out differently. But God's love is enduring and it makes it through some of those things. Good. What other things do we know? For anyone who maybe hasn't been here or has missed a bunch or has amnesia from October till now, what have we learned about Hosea um, in the first two chapters? I think Mike. I think one of the, maybe not so, well, part of it I would say what you're saying, but one of the things that is that how God was Yeah, background music. That's good. (laughs) How people, some people, in general, think that they're good enough to get to heaven. You know, I'm not as bad as this person. Yeah. But I'm good enough to get to heaven. And when we look at Isaiah having a narrative of apostasy, and God's comparing that to Israel, you know, it's like, okay, you think you're that good? Yeah. 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 Yep. Yeah, there's there's so much crossover between Israel and us. It's kind of scary, really. Yeah, you know, it's, I mean, on the day of 
every, people in love and celebrating love and all that kind of stuff. Um, we talk about God, you know, our single young people, that God would bring them the person that he wants for them. I don't know that people who have that kind of wording coming out of their mouth about their children or loved ones or whatever think, I hope he brings them like a prostitute, like he brought Hosea, you know, so that their love story could be amazing. That's not generally how we process things. I mean, there are stories about that. I was just on TV last night flipping through and um, the Pretty Woman movie comes up. And so here's a guy who, you know, falls in love with a prostitute or whatever and it's a different genre story for sure than than this one. Um, but we do kind of get that the way that we think about love, but then the way that we try to manage love and, and move forward in love seem to be divergent. We would like for love to hit us, um, to be overwhelming, to be wonderful, for the person that we're in love with to be wonderful, for everything to be great. And as the fairy tale says, then we could live happily ever after from there on. And so when, when troubles show up in our relationship, when, when struggles and difficulties, and when the person that I'm in love with turns out to not be perfect, we kind of, oh no, I guess we'll have to try to love them anyway. It's almost like we don't even understand what love is. We, we don't even have a picture of it. I was having this conversation the other day with someone who is living this principle out, and so it's why it came up in this conversation. Um, he said, you know, Love is teaching me to be patient. And he said, and I really dug into the origins of the word patient. And it literally means long suffering. Love is long suffering. And I said, you know, it's interesting when you go to the biblical description of love in 1 Corinthians 13, the very first thing on the list, love is patient. So, we, I don't know how we romanticize it out, but we come to love with some kind of expectation that love will not have to suffer. But the very first thing that God lists about it is that it is long-suffering. So maybe our pictures and, and the, the comparisons and the models that we make of what's my relationship look like to everybody else's relationship, maybe we need to look better at the Word of God and about God's love for us than we do about what we see and hear, or what gets posted on social media, if we really want to understand love. And I say this all the time to young adults. If you want to know how to love someone for the rest of your life, learn how to love someone now. <laughs> and enough that it's not selfish. Like even in the dating scene, what is it to date unselfishly? Learn some of that stuff. Because you're learning about, do I fit with this person or that person? But... How about figuring out how to be a non-self-centered person in a relationship? How about that? How about learning patience in a relationship? Well, that doesn't sound so sexy, right? I would rather have the, the gushy you know, words to, to type out. But love is long-suffering. And so we see this enduring love. We see this picture of love through the story of Hosea. Who God says, go marry a prostitute. Hosea, good news. I found you a wife. Man of God, I found your wife. She's a prostitute. She sells her body for sex. Um, and I want you to marry her. And then they have some children. How many children do they have? We know that they have one. Because the first one, Jezreel, is... Hosea went to his wife and knew her. And she bore him a son. They named Jezreel. The other two children, there's two other children. 
Lo Ruhama and Lo Ami. It just says, and she conceived again. So you start to get a picture of what this marriage looks like. And so there's a family with three children, and Hosea is a, is a public servant of God. He's, he's got to broadcast the word of God to people. He's got to make a big, you know, everybody look at me. Everybody listen to me. I've got the word of God. Listen up. And they're like, and there's your family over there. You know, cheating wife, three kids, two of which we don't even think are yours. You think that might have felt a little bit undermined while he was talking to people on behalf of God? You know, so we get into that story and, and we find that God gives all of them names. And why does God give each of his children names? Specific names, weird names, Lo Ruhama, Lo Ami, Jezreel. Jezreel, I guess you could use. Okay. Yep. Each of those names have a very specific meaning and God unpacks it. I want you to name this child this. Because those who have been uh, receiving my love and objects of my love, I am not going to show them love. And those who have been my people, I am not going to, they are not going to be my people anymore. Right? And Jezreel, the judgment of God, the, the harvesting of God is going to show up in, in Israel. The time is coming for judgment to be poured out. And so he's got these three children with these three names that all mean God is, the clock's running out. What do we know about the situation in Israel? This is Northern Kingdom, Southern Kingdom. We drew a map first time, split kingdom. Northern Kingdom is who Jose is talking to. And what was the economic situation like in the Northern Kingdom at this time? Successful. America, basically. I mean, I know we're all like, oh, the economy's so down or whatever, but why don't you move to some other country and see how what a down economy really is? You know what I mean? Like, we are wealthy and prosperous. The stock market keeps doing all that stuff, and for all intents and purposes, it's very rare that somebody doesn't have heat, that don't, they don't have food. And, and even if somebody finds himself in that situation, in our culture, our way of living, it's probably pretty short term. There are some people who find themselves down, but for the most part, everything's good and there's opportunity. That's what Israel is like. So Hosea shows up on the scene saying, God is going to judge you. And Israel goes, yeah, good one. Now, why is God going to judge them? What are they doing that's getting him so... Right, they're worshiping gods of the land, uh, you know, making idols and worshiping them. And then as we went into chapter 2, we found that they were giving those idols and those false gods credit for the blessings God was pouring out. So they were acting like, you know, we go sacrifice to, to Baal and and Ashereth and the other false gods, and they make our harvests come, and they make our uh, flocks prosper. And so, thank you, Baal. And God says, don't you know that was me? Why would you give them credit for that? Right? And so Hosea is in this relationship with her, where his wife is cheating on him, and God says, that's just like my relationship with Israel. And it starts to kind of open up a different way of thinking about how our actions, your actions and my actions, affect our God. When he compares it to the love between a husband and wife, and he says, as you worship other things, as you give credit to or or act like other things are your source of blessing and goodness and life and hope and joy, instead of me, it feels betraying as though a wife is cheating on her husband in plain view. It gives you a whole different view of 
God's relationship with us and our preciousness to Him. And so that's what, as you go through Hosea, uh, Hosea 1 and then into Hosea 2, um, Hosea 2 is God laying out His case and saying, so it's, there's coming a day and it's right around the corner and I will pour out my judgment. Um, and verse 13, he says, I will punish her for the days she burns incense to the bales. There's going to be hard times ahead. But what, as we ended chapter 2, the, the tone shifted. And what did the tone shift to? Yes. Stunningly, because God has every right to say all that he says at the beginning. Stunningly, God says, but I haven't given up on you. My love endures. My purpose will play out. And our relationship is not based on your faithfulness. It's based on my faithfulness. That's why we went all the way back to Genesis 17 and Genesis 15 and saw the Abrahamic covenant and the way that God established it unilaterally. Even causing, when the, the covenant is sealed, Abraham to fall asleep. And God, as a, as a fiery pillar, goes between the animals alone. Saying, I am the one making this vow, not Abraham. And so there's this unconditional covenant that God makes. And God says, so my love for you is not going to get rocked. And so as I read that, I think it's always important for us to ask, why are we still talking about this story 2,500 years later? We're talking about a story where a prophet marries a prostitute. We're talking about a story where God says, I'm going to judge you. And then sure enough, he does. But he says, then I'm going to return and, and restore you. And I will woo you back. And I will place you back as objects of my love. And here we are probably about 2,700 years later, reading this story. Why? Why are we reading it? What does it mean for us? Virginia? Because we're still doing the same thing. We still have other idols. We still have other gods that are giving our affections to Yeah. We do the same things. And that is piercing. Because instead of us looking at, at Gomer and going, Oh, how could you? Oh, that's so horrible. What kind of person? Instead of looking at Israel and going, what's wrong with you people? We say, I understand that. That's me. That's who I am. And God is calling to me. How? How is God making his appeal to you and I through Hosea? Based on what? Based on his love. That I will love you no matter what. So come follow me. Nothing you can do will shake me. So be mine. Put your hope in me. Put your faith in me. Let, let's know one another. Let's step into presence and, and, and reality with each other. And let's walk this life hand in hand. Arm in arm. Let's walk together. As one. Because I love you. He could say, you better do it because you should be scared of me. He could say it because I have a whole list of all the wrongs that you've done and what's going to... He doesn't choose any of those things. He says, come because I love you and I will win you with my love. And so as we looked at First John... Behold the manner of love that has been poured out on us. Behold, that word behold over and over against the scriptures, like, could you just stop and take a look at this? Have you looked at it for a while? Have you been impacted with the reality of it? For, behold 
the greatness of the love of God that he would call you his child. Look at the way you've behaved and the way you've acted and the things you've glorified and honored and the lives you've pursued. Look at that. And then go, he said, you're mine. You're my child. And that's what Hosea is doing here. Look at the love that God has for you because it's the love that redeems. It's the love of God that brings redemption to, you know, through Hosea to Gomer, through Hosea's prophecy to Israel, and through the word of God and the sacrifice of Christ for you and I. It is the love of God that redeems over and over again. So let's read chapter 3. Um, and this is kind of, the, like I said, the culmination of the, the narrative before we get into a, a lot of prophecies and poetry and stuff like that. And so verse uh, 1 of chapter 3, The Lord said to me, Go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an, and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethek of barley. Then I told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I will behave the same way toward you. Four, the Israelites will live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come trembling to the Lord and to his blessings in the last days. Okay, so we have the story and then we have the four. We have the why and what does this represent? All in just these uh, short five verses here in chapter three. So let's kind of d- dive into this and walk through the chapter here. Um, it starts with the Lord said to me. Now, as I as I read that and look at that, I you know that's just a lot of times in the Bible you, you kind of take that as well. This is just telling me who's speaking, but it's important in this sense because it tells us why the things happened in the story that happened in the story. In other words, if you rewind back to chapter 1, Hosea didn't go to God and say, God, I really love this woman. I'm devoted to her and I I love her, and so therefore I want to marry her. Am I allowed to? And God said, you know what? You can marry her, and I'm going to use it as this great illustration of my love. Hosea married Gomer because God said, I want you to go find a prostitute, and I want you to go marry her. It wasn't... Hosea's, you know, goodness of heart, it was God's direction for him. And here, the restoration of Hosea's marriage is not a reflection of the goodness of Hosea's heart so much as it is God said, the Lord said to me. It doesn't say here, and so Hosea fell deeply in love with Gomer. And because he loved her so deeply, he went after her. And I, I think, because I even, even in the past couple of weeks, I've had this conversation with a number of people. I think that we buy in unwittingly because we're immersed in this culture to this narrative that in love is on par with love. 
the in love thing, the infatuation, the, the, the overwhelming joy and excitement about being with someone and that the newness of that relationship and the exploring, that that is like right there, neck and neck with love. And we put the same word on it, in love, as love, so it gets confusing and we try to talk to young people about what's love and well, we know what love is. It's that, you know, it's when you can't stop talking about somebody and all you want to do is be with them. We know what love is. But, so we've talked about in love almost like it is love. But here what we see is God say, I want to show my love to my people by you going and loving your wife. And he says nothing about you better be in love You better wait for the lightning bolt to hit you and for you to feel all stirred up inside. He says, go show love to your wife. That is powerfully instructive for us because it takes us, if we will, if we will take that in, if we will absorb that into our soul, it takes us from the vulnerability of the way the world presents relationships and durability and love and we escape all of that because we get back to what true love is. And the nature of it, described in 1 Corinthians 13, but certainly described in this story. So there's no indication Hosea would have gone and found his wife. It seems that Gomer has walked out of him, out of his home, out of his life, just gone and done her own thing and he almost doesn't know where she is or she's far away and he knows where she is but there's no indication that Homer says or Hosea says I'm going to go find Gomer because I, I just miss her right because he's a human being and so since she has rejected her husband who as a good man and a providing man and a man of even grace has done good towards her she's rejected him And so that, just like any one of us, if we were rejected by someone we deeply cared for and we wanted to spend the rest of our lives with, if we were rejected by that person or betrayed by that person, it would hurt deeply. And many of you have walked that experience. And it feels unrecoverable. Hosea felt that. So when God comes to him and says, go go to your wife, go get her, he's not jumping for joy. Because he's a human being. God wants to show us his love. But in order for him to show us his love, he's got to use limited, weak human beings who struggle with our own self-centeredness and our own feelings and that stuff. And he has to just obey and just get up and go. So he says, go. Now, in this story, who's the one who left? Gomer left. Who's the one who's going to go? Hosea. What I want you to see from that is this. Because this is the great news of the whole story of this. Gomer leaves. Hosea goes. What that says is... God acts like that towards us. We leave. We rebel. We turn our back. We go our own way. We do our own thing. 
We say, oh, thank you, God, for saving me. I don't really want you interfering with my life because I got plants. And because he's God and we don't see him and he doesn't cry in front of us or whatever, he's got to be impervious to that. So we just go on with our lives. And what does God do? God comes after us. He doesn't come after us because we deserve it. Gomer doesn't deserve it. But he comes after us. And and that is always the way that people are redeemed. That is always the miracle of transformation, of restoration. That is always the miracle of redemption. It happens because God goes. Instead of God sitting there, well, I'm going to wait for you to come to your senses. I'm going to wait for you to wise up. And there is a picture in the New Testament where the father of the prodigal son waits for the son to return. And so I'm not undermining some of the other images that are there. I'm just saying this image specifically is that when Gomer has made a wreck of her life and has done everything she can to reject what Hosea wants to do for her, God says to Hosea, I want you to show her love like I love Israel. And the way you do that is when she's out there lost and suffering for her sin, go get her. Go after her. That's the God we serve. He doesn't always get that kind of press, you know. Christians seem to come off and seem to give the impression to the world that God is a God who tries to measure whether or not you have the right sexual orientation or gender or whether you've done well enough with your money or whether you're faithful enough in in this area or that area. You've got to measure up because God's up there grading you. And I'm not saying it's all, you know, intended to come off wrong, but you can't argue that that's kind of the impression that our Lord has in the world is that he's measuring everybody and deciding who the good ones are, and who the bad ones are. And the Christians clearly think they're all the good ones and everybody else is the bad ones. But Hosea's life says, I want you to know this about God. When you make a mess of your life and you are beyond hope, and you are enslaved by your mistakes and the failures and the things that have brought you to a ruinous end, God comes after you. Not because you deserve it, because you don't, but because He loves you with an unfailing love. And because God is like that, we have hope. So when we get together on Sunday or when Matt's up here singing our heart should be filled up with that truth. Because if that weren't true, it all the other stuff in your life that, that affects your brain and your mind, and I gotta think through this and I gotta decide that and I and I want new curtains in the living room and all you know, all the things that you have going on in your life don't matter at all. They're not even on the same playing field as this truth. That our God saves and our God redeems and our God loves with an unfailing love. Isn't that amazing? So he says, go. Now, I want to say this. People are always redeemed and saved because God initiates and comes after them. Nobody finds God on their own. You didn't and I didn't. In fact, Paul says in Romans, there are none that seek after God. We're not like, we talk about people who are seeking God and we're using terminology and I'm not saying it's evil, wrong terminology. But the truth is, anybody who's like got questions about God, 
I always say to them, well, the reason you have questions about God is because God's coming after you. So I would listen and I would ask your questions and I would get those answers and I would receive what God's coming after you for because he's coming after you for eternal life. Right? So we don't seek God out. If God didn't want to be known, we wouldn't know him. If God did not want to be seen, he would be unseeable. But God self-reveals even through a story like Hosea because he wants us to know him. But God does not always go after everybody. God does not always go after everybody. And that is a, I mean, as powerful as the love of God is, and, and that there is also a good chunk of scripture where God decides that is the end of me coming after you. And now, judgment. And that is a sobering place to realize that God's love came after me and I received it and I'm so thankful. But there are people in this world that reject it and reject it and reject it and reject it and eventually God says, that's it. And think about some people in the word of God where God did that. I think about Romans 1. In Romans 1, he talks about they didn't like to acknowledge him God. They would rather worship the creation instead of the creator. And so God gave them up. God turned them over. Set them loose. And it had fallout and effects in their sexual behavior and the way that they viewed the world. and the, Had effects. God turned them over and let them run wild. Um, think about King Saul, right? God picked him. God offered him opportunity to establish his line forever, but instead Saul kept turning away and turning away and turning away, and then God comes through Samuel and says, I have rejected you from being king of Israel, and I've chosen another in your place. And even as the rest of the story of, of Saul plays out, it, it winds up at a very tragic end, but Saul never turns back to God. The rest of his life is a mess. And the night before he dies, he goes to see a medium to ask Samuel what's going to happen. And so this Samuel, who's been dead, actually comes up out of the grave and appears before Saul to say, you're going to die tomorrow. Tomorrow, you and your sons will be with me. Horrible story. Uh, even prophecies, like a couple of books later, in the, after Hosea, there's a book of Obadiah. Uh, and it's about a nation, calls it the nation of Esau. It's the nation known as Edom. And he basically, there's no redemption in the book of Obadiah. It is, uh, your time is up, your judgment has been decided, and you're going to be wiped off the face of the earth. And so right now, if I say to you, you know, the nation of Edom, you're like, yeah, no, I don't know that nation. Why? Because Obadiah. Because <laughs> time was up. They reached the end of God's pursuing them in love. They, they convinced God, or God foresaw, or whatever it is, that they were never going to turn. That's the end. Yeah, so God does not always go after people. Sometimes when we talk about God's redeeming love, God's enduring love, what we do is we get the impression in our head that we have to go after everybody all the time no matter what. And so I'm saying to you, God, even infinite God sets limits and says that's it. Right? So you and I have to have this awareness. God can endure stuff like Gomer and Hosea. Israel and Judah. God can endure that stuff. He's infinite. You're not. <laughs> so you cannot, and you don't see very clearly. God sees really clearly. So you cannot just presume that love means I have to keep going after everybody all the time. 
So in other words, in order to reflect God, what we have to do is we have to submit and we have to look for guidance from a vision and wisdom that's greater than ours. Our love in its expression to people has got to be fueled by the God of love who has the strength to help us love even when we're betrayed. But we can't just presume that we're always supposed to go after everybody. Does that make sense? Does it make sense? Yeah. I always feel like he said, if you have life, you have there's hope. Yes. That, God, and that there's always that opportunity. You know? Mm-hmm. And maybe, I'm not saying that we, so we just just others, but... Right. What I'm saying is God will go much further than we can imagine. Always much further than we can imagine. I'm not underplaying God, but I am bringing a reality where people get themselves in trouble because they assume... That when I talk about this and they've drawn a boundary with somebody or they've said that's all, that that means God's saying to them, you got to keep going. And I'm saying, maybe, maybe God will call you to keep going because he wants you to reflect his love. But you better be sure God is saying, keep going. Because if you don't, you're going to wind, wind up toasted because you're not God. You don't see super clear and you don't have his reserves and his all of his strength. So know that it is. I would say there are some ways where I would presume that with my, you know, with my marriage or with children. I can presume it. But even those things, I mean, obviously here, it's not evil for Hosea to say to Gomer, I'm not, I'm done with you. It's not evil, right? It's not wrong. It just happened to not be God's plan here. Right, And so for us, we have a heart that responds to the redeeming love of God. And so we love that. That is our thrill. That is our joy. That's what we want to see in our life all the time. And that's a good thing. And that is how we should act and interact with people. It should be really, really hard for people to escape our love. Do you know what I mean? All right, another question. Yeah, and and we find, absolutely, we find in the New Testament a very similar thing where God says to Israel here, you will not be my objects of love, you will not be loved, and you will not be my people. Um, in the New Testament, we find this principle about discipline, where God makes our life rough so that we don't keep going away that's destructive. And so it would feel like God doesn't love me or God doesn't care about me. That doesn't mean he doesn't. And just like it doesn't mean that he doesn't to Israel here. But he's going to change his behavior towards them. And in the end, what you find out is because he loves them that he changes his behavior towards them so that he can redeem them and rescue them. And what I'm saying is, some I believe God, while someone is on this earth, is always after them. And when he becomes convinced that 
there's no more hope for them, and he gives them up. It's a pretty short path from there to the grave. I don't think people hang around hopelessly rebelling against God. I just don't. And I I don't have any chapter or verse for that. I'm just taking what I get from the Word of God here and going, while people are around, God's after them. You know, if they're still here, God's after them. So if you have a wayward prodigal in your family, wherever, God's after them. (laughs) And he's much better at going after them than you are. He is. He's way, way better at them at, go, at going after the, those people than you are. And also, God may not use you as the redemptive love. Because God use, has all kinds of instruments to use as redemptive love, and I don't really care who he uses, I care that he redeems. So, so that's kind of my point there. Um, because sometimes when we talk about that, it, it, it clouds us up on that there is real call for us to have limits. Um, at the same time, they should be limits that reflect the love and the redeeming grace of our God. We should have a heart for redemption all the time. And it shouldn't be that my love goes up and down based on the performance of the person over there. It should not be that my love decides whether it's going to endure or not based on whether that person has weaknesses or that person is irritating you know, like I'll cut to the end here. Everybody's irritating. It's like, I'll give you a little secret. There's nobody who's not irritating. Everybody's irritating. So if I'm going to love people, I've got to accept that love is long-suffering and love holds out. Um, it's the love that most reflects God's love and it's the love that opens the opportunity for transforming power. It is the love that gets set aside so often and power plays in this world. We would rather make things the way they're supposed to be by power. And God offers us the opportunity to make things the way that they ought to be through the love reflected of God's love for us in our relationship. Uh, there was a time when the disciples were sent out, and this is before Pentecost and everything, but mm-hmm. uh, I don't know if it's, it's, it's uh, for us today, right. but he sent them out and he said if they reject it, just you know, knock the dust off. Right, right. Another great example of the idea that there is like this determination of God sometimes to say that's it. You know, and I I don't want to be, I certainly don't want to be on that continuum. I don't want to be heading that direction in my life with my Lord. Um, But it it shows that God is right to judge and just in it, for sure. It couldn't, couldn't it be said that like in a lot of these cases where God, I mean, it seems to us in our human thinking that I guess we can view it as he gives up on that. Um, couldn't it be viewed more as the fact that he knows the beginning, the middle, and the end? Yes. By him knowing in the future that regardless of what effort is made, you will still reject me, then what point is the effort to make if mm-hmm. he knows the end result already? Mm-hmm. So that's kind of how I view sometimes where we see it and the way that we view it as, you know, he gave up. But in all reality, he didn't give up. He knew that regardless of what would happen... Right. No sense to waste that. You know, he he forms his will around it. He uses that in some way for his good, and just transfers it to those that are open. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do. I I agree with that. And I, man, the big point of this book is that God's love endures and redeems. And and so I don't want to wash that away by counterpointing it. But I do want to say this: you look at God in the Old Testament, and He goes says to Israel, "Go into this town and wipe out everybody." Wipe out the Amalekites, women, children, everybody. Wipe them all out. How is God's redeeming love there? No, that's God's judgment. 
right? And there's grace even in that judgment, I would say, because I think to Ryan's point, our God knows from the end, from the beginning. And so you've got generation after generation of people who are born into this godless land. And the most gracious thing you can do if they're never going to turn is to stop more people from being born into that and being doomed. I mean, in a very opposite way of thinking, that's grace. Instead of just letting it going on and on and on and more and more people being born into something in a culture that is just going to push them towards doom. So there's a lot of ways of talking about that. And I think for us, all I'm saying is, we are not God. So God knows the paths to choose and to take. God knows when it's time for tough love and time for uh, just grace, gentleness. God knows all that. We don't. If you've ever been in one of those relationships, you know that they get dicey and they get hard. What I'm saying to you is, Hosea didn't even know it. But Hosea knew because God said, I want you to do this now. So I'm saying, you if you want to reflect God's love, it has to be under the direction of God. You have to let God give you wisdom and guidance as to when, where, how, what times to engage, what times to disengage. But underneath of it, my love endures in this way. I am always rooting for those people to get it. That's how I can love. I'm always hoping for the their good, you know? And so there's that picture of God's love that isn't shaken by the failings of, of, the, of the weaknesses of the one that he's betrothed to. And so he says to Hosea, go show your love to your wife again. Some question whether this is Gomer, because literally the words are not wife, the words are woman. Literally go and love a woman who's loved by another man and commits adultery. Um, I would say, I think that's kind of, because somebody will throw that at you sometime. Oh, well, Hosea didn't even go back and marry his own wife. It doesn't even say that. He says, go marry, uh, go marry again. Go show love again. Right? That seems to indicate you've shown her love before. Right? So that's one. Two is, the whole book doesn't make any sense if this isn't Gomer. Like, that doesn't tell us anything. God's whole point is, I'm going to restore Israel, so go marry a different woman? No, that doesn't make any sense. So, I think that people sometimes get too smart for their own good when they try to get real, real clear there. Um, so, this love that, that Hosea is going to go give Gomer is undeserved. In the Word of God, we call that grace. And it says, she is... Loved by another man. Even though she's loved by another man, go show her love. And the the sense of that is, even while she is still involved in the activity of her betrayal, show her love there. Don't wait for her to change for you to show her love. Because in that love, I think what God's showing, showing through Hosea is, there is hope for you even while you're a mess. I'm thankful for that. That even while you're a mess, there is still hope for you. God's love can reach to where you are. And so though she's loved by another man, though she's an adulteress, and that is that that betrayal of marriage vows. It's not just general immorality. It's somebody who is exclusively committed in a covenant with a spouse, but acts outside that covenant. And that word adulteress is meant to, to portray Israel as an adulteress in a covenant relationship with God, but they see that as a, as a burden or as something to get rid of or something to, to, to push off to the side and instead go pursue these other relationships with other gods. And so that's the picture of God and Israel represented here. 
Israel as adulteress, God is going to show love to her again, even in the midst of her adultery. I would say, and, and this is not foreign to our church, um, to my life in any way, that that is the way a Christian tries to respond to betrayal in marriage. You know, the Bible talks about you can, you know, you have allowance for divorce if you, if their partner's committed adultery or whatever. But this is our, like, model. This is, this is our heart. And if we believe that God has redemptive power for any circumstance, then this is what we want to see when there's betrayal in marriage. We want, we want to go down this path, um, not down the other ones. And so God even says, love her as the Lord loves the Israelites. Even though they turn to other gods, that's their adultery. And even though they love the sacred raisin cakes, which we don't really know what that means. <laughs> I guess raisin cakes are really good. Uh, it seems because they are connected to loving other gods that they are some food that is consumed as a part of a worship ritual. Uh, there are other places in the word of God that kind of hint at that. So could be. Um, we're just not not super, super sure. So, it says he bought her. He bought her, and I'm going to sum this up for you, um, because it's kind of, it's really convoluted, but he says, I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethek of barley. Very obscure words, especially lethek is a very obscure word in the Hebrew. Most people believe that that all adds up to about 30 pieces of silver. 15 pieces of silver plus this grain adds up to a value of about 30 pieces of silver. So that starts to register with people, right? 30 pieces of silver. Where does that, what does that register with? Judas. Judas and Jesus. Judas sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver. Okay, so, so because God is God, there's tie-in between the redemption that is accomplished through the sale that Judas makes there. But you know why 30 pieces of silver was decided on? If you go to Exodus 21.32, the price of a slave in Israel is fixed in the law as 30 pieces of silver. So Judas sold Jesus as a slave. For the price of a slave. Um, There's also, if you are in Leviticus 27, there is this price of devoting someone, devoting yourself to God in a sacred vow, in a special vow. It makes this provision for if you want to, and there's lots of reasons why you would want to make a sacred vow or whatever. But the way you do that is you present 30, for an adult, male or female, 30 pieces of silver. And so without pulling all that apart, I'm just saying this 30 pieces of silver thing comes up again and again and again in the Bible. Um, And if you go backwards, it is the price of devotion and it is the price of uh, purchasing a slave. If you go forward, it is the price that was put on the head of our Savior as he was taken to the cross. So here in the middle of it all, we have Hosea going to some place and paying 30 pieces of silver. Now, why did he need to pay 30 pieces of silver? Not real clear in the passage, right, that we read. It just says, so I bought her for 15 seconds of silver. So the word bought um, most likely means purchased. It can mean I gave money for her, meaning she owed somebody. 
So I paid off her debts. So she was released from the debt and free to come home with me. But it doesn't seem to be that, especially not in this scenario. It seems to be that she is property now. So how did she get to be property? She took a path of immorality that led her to consequences. And the consequences probably are most Jewish people, as they read this, would see a scene of her standing in a town square being sold on an auction block as a slave. And so here's bitter Hosea coming up and say, I'll pay 30 for her. So his wife leaves him, betrays him, and he, this is the literal word, redeem, redeems her. He buys her back from slavery to belong to him. What is the price that was paid to redeem you? His son. And the price that was on his son's head? 30 pieces of silver. So you start to see the the tie-ins that are made here on purpose from the genius of God uh, as the story gets told. And so here she is in the throes of the consequences and fallout of her sin. And this is the moment that Hosea shows up by the direction of God, the hand of God, and says, okay, that's as far as you're going to have to go down that path. Before you're lost forever to wherever you'll be sold, time to come home. What a great story of redemption uh, in the Word of God.